Hello and welcome back to A Dream and a Fear. We're clocking up the pods this, this week. This is our second uh, and we have a few more to come. So uh, after a barren spell during the summer, we're back. We were joined by David Bezmozgis uh, talking about the fascinating story surrounding Sasha Pachevsky, a Russian POW who spent time in a, in a camp in Poland. And yeah, Max, do you want to sort of sum up some of the strands that we spoke about? Yeah, um, I mean, it was a pretty, it's a pretty harrowing story. It's not sort of light listening, but really, really worthwhile. Um, if you have any interest in, you know, 20th century history, I think it's essential to sort of know stories like this. Um, as Hugo touched upon it, it, it traces his journey, not just fighting from the Red Army, but also through Sobibor um, and the ordeal and that he had there. And then also the, the sort of uprising, uh, which is again an amazing story so uh, and that's just a small uh, fraction of, of the sort of uh, trials and tribulations that he went through so so really yeah recommend it highly um yeah highly engaging but also pretty yeah tough to listen to at times yeah absolutely um and yeah we'll leave you in the warm embrace of david So um, just before we go, go into the story, uh, could you tell us, David, how is it that you first got interested in Pachetesky? Um So, you know, my background is Russian Jewish, Soviet Jewish, um, really Latvian Jewish, uh, but Soviet Jewish. And, uh, and I've been writing about this material, this subject matter, mostly in fiction for, uh, for close to 20 years now. Um, and I was approached by the editors of Tablet Magazine, which is a online, um, you know, sort of general interest Jewish magazine coming that's published out of New York. Um, and the editor, one of the editors, asked me if I knew who Sasha Pachersky was, and I didn't. Um, and he was very keen to have me write something about him because it was 2018 and it was the 75th anniversary of the Sobibor uprising, of which I knew a little bit. There had been a film made of it, in fact, which I think was BBC Films um, in the 80s. Um, so I had some small sense of it. Um, and then I just started researching it, um, researching Pachersky, and very quickly became intrigued um, for two reasons. I mean, the one reason is um, the uprising itself is so remarkable. Um, you know, these Jews in a death camp um, managing to plan an escape for the entire camp. That was the idea um, by killing SS officers. Um, and the other part of it was, as I researched into Pachersky, I realized it was actually very difficult to do. There was very little information about him um, in the English language. And what there was was either contradictory, um, often contradictory. Um, and so I wanted to know who this person was, and I became intrigued. I wanted as much as possible to understand what enables a man, a person, to lead that type of revolt under those circumstances. Who was he? Um, and mm -hmm. then I started researching as much as I could. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it really is a fascinating story. Um, and but, but it, 
you say it's very difficult to find sources on him. Do we know a lot about his early life, where he came from, his relationship with his his parents, etc.? Right. So English language sources are very poor um, for Pachersky's life, but there are Russian language sources, and he wrote a memoir um, immediately after World War II. He wrote a short memoir which focused mostly on what happened in Sobibor, but touched a little bit on his own life, um, you know, his family life, where he was born, who his parents were. And there are Russian scholars, um, you know, of the last, I don't know, 10, 15 years that have really tried to understand him um, and dig up materials. And lastly, his daughter um, in 2018 was living uh, in Rostov-on-Don, which is where Pachersky spent most of his life. I, I honestly don't know if she's still living. It's been a couple of years since I've been in touch, but she was there um, and so was his granddaughter. So it was possible to go and speak to um, his daughter to try to get some of these facts from the most that she could remember. Um, now, if you want me to say something about his, uh, his early life, um, this is what's known. Uh, he was born in 1909 in Kremenchug, Ukraine, uh, which is more in the news now than it had been. Um, Kremenchug was the place where um, I think there was um, a shopping center that was bombed during the war. Um, and he was born there in 1909. His family moved apparently in 1915 from Kremenchug to Rostov-on-Don in Russia. So they moved from Ukraine to Russia um, during the First World War. Um, much of which, you know, raged on the Eastern Front in what was known as the Pale of Settlement, where there were a great many Jews because Jews weren't allowed to reside uh, in most of the Russian Empire. Certainly very little, uh, very few of them could live in Russia proper. So in Ukraine and Belarus, and uh, that's where the majority of the Jewish population was. And... You know, it's not known why they left, but what is known around the time is that the Jews were mistrusted by uh, the Tsarist Russian uh, regime and they moved them away from the front lines. So they would move them east into Russia. Um, there were also pogroms, um, which became worse actually after the, the First World War, but even during the war. And it was just dangerous. Um, so there was a large movement of, of population, particularly Jewish population, during World War I. And within that period, his family moves to Rostov-on-Don, which is um, known as, it's a port town um, on, uh, oh my God, I'm forgetting the name of the, the, uh, the sea, um, the Ozov Sea, the Sea of Ozov. Um, and I dried up. No, no, it's still there. The Sea of Ozov is still there. And in fact, it's very much in play again now because of uh, of the war between Russia and Ukraine. Um, so Russia, uh, it was a port town the way that Odessa is a port town. It was a kind of a cosmopolitan city in terms of having different um, ethnicities living there, uh, including Jews. Um, so you had... Uh, you would have even Greeks and Ukrainians and Russians, um, some Tatars, 
and Cossacks. It was the uh, an area of uh, of the Don Cossacks. So all these populations lived in Rostov. It was it was um, second only to Moscow and uh, Leningrad after uh, the revolution. So it was third in Jewish population in Russia, not in the Soviet Union, but in Russia. Um, and so there was a sizable enough Jewish population that the family moves there. Um, Pichersky is the third of four children. He has an older sister, an older brother, um, and then a younger sister. Um, his father was a lawyer of some kind. His mother was a homemaker. Um, and the family spoke Yiddish at home, which comes into play as, you know, depending on how deeply we get into this conversation, but they were a Yiddish-speaking Jewish family, Yiddish and Russian, um, and to some extent observant, um, you know, in the Jewish faith. Um, Pachersky grows up uh, as really one of, you know, these this first generation of Soviet people who really, you know, went through the Soviet school system, was indoctrinated in the ideals of the revolution and internationalism, um, that uh, that all peoples are equal, that ethnicity doesn't matter anymore. You know, it was, it was much more about class, was supposed to be than about race. Um, Anti-Semitism, which had been rampant uh, in Tsarist Russia, um, is explicitly made illegal and punishable. Um, so for many Jews also, the, the pale of settlement is lifted and Jews can move and now live anywhere in the Soviet Union. And so you have a, a large transfer of, of Jewish population um, into the, you know, the urban centers of, of the Soviet Union and Russia, which had been forbidden to them before. So this is the sort of environment that Pachersky grows up in. Um, he has, I think, eight grades of schooling and then he um, he's musical. And he studies musical theater. Um, his brother's also interested in the same thing. And most of his life, really, before uh, 1941, June the 22nd, when the war starts, is this sort of life as somebody who performs and directs uh, musical theater. He plays the piano quite well, it turns out. Um, and he marries a woman who is a Cossack, Russian Cossack, ethnic Russian. Um, who also sings beautifully and they play the piano and they live in this environment of inviting uh, other like-minded people to the house um, and they, you know, go to performances and he has students. And this is the life, you know, that Pichersky leads before World War II. They also have a daughter, as I mentioned, who's, uh, who's born in 1933, if I'm not mistaken, or 1934, um, and is seven years old when the war starts in 41. And yeah, he 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 was inscripted into the Red Army um, and later captured at the Battle of Moscow, um, where he was sent to a German penal camp. Um, and initially he wasn't recognized as a Jew, um, but only for his medical, uh, where they discovered this. How did that change his fate um, under uh, yeah, in, in, under these conditions? Well, I would I would take just one step back because something else happens in between that is significant. I think it um, I don't know to the extent to which people are aware of what it meant to be um, a Soviet uh, Red Army POW at the beginning of World War Two. Um, the Germans mm -hmm. 
so quickly that where Pachersky was, which was, um, it, they were defending Moscow, um, and uh, it was called the Vyazma Pocket. Um, they were surrounded, and uh, about a million Russian uh, Red Army soldiers were uh, were taken prisoner. If you can, you know, grasp what that means, um, mm. and the Germans didn't expect to take such large numbers of prisoners. They weren't. Uh, equipped for it. Um, and a couple of things happen at the very beginning. So this is the war starts in, in uh, June of 42, sorry, of 41. Um, in October, uh, there's this encirclement um, in Vyazma uh, below Moscow. And at that time, in the very beginning, I mean, the, the, the Germans are routing the Red Army everywhere. If you were Jewish or if you were a communist, and it was discovered in these early months of the war, you would be handed over to the SS and killed. Um, so people could be denounced as Jews or communists. Um, Jews, uh, Jewish men, um, who at that time had been born before the Soviet regime took over, uh, pretty much all of them would have been ritually circumcised. So you know, what the Germans would do if they had any doubt is like tell people to drop their pants. And that was enough uh, to determine if uh, if somebody was Jewish or not. Um, and that would seal your fate. Um, so somehow Pachersky, though captured at, at a time when Jews and communists were being killed, um, wasn't denounced or revealed or somehow he concealed the fact that he was Jewish and he was in a general POW camp for all uh, Red Army soldiers, which was at the time usually just tens of thousands of people or more in open fields, often with nothing else, surrounded by barbed wire, uh, exposed to the elements and people were dying, you know, in the thousands all every day. Um, Pachersky apparently contracted typhus and lived with typhus and concealed it for nine months. I don't know how somebody does that. Uh, <laughs> if anyone is uh, was discovered to have typhus, they would be killed. So there are all these reasons why Pachersky should not have survived, even to the moment that you're describing, um, because he was Jewish. His name, you know, Sasha Pachersky, isn't uh, overtly Jewish. Um, he didn't speak Yiddish, therefore he may have had just a very clean Russian accent. Um, so somehow he just was not discovered, and, and there's he never explains it. Um, the reason that he ends up at this POW camp, um, the second one, the, the very harsh one, is because he actually escaped with uh, with two other uh, prisoners. Uh, or tried to escape, about which he says nothing also other than I, you know, escaped and was caught. Um, there are just these tremendous gaps, dramatic gaps um, in his story that are so intriguing, but he never expands on them. Um, but he's captured, again, not killed, and sent to a, more of a punishment camp near Minsk, and then there is a medical selection because they're going to send these um, Red Army soldiers to Germany for slave labor. And at that point, 
there's a medical commission, which basically means all the all the men are passing by naked. And, you know, that's what he says, that it was a medical examination. It was discovered that he was a Jew. This is already, you know, over a year of him being in captivity under horrific conditions where people were dying all the time just of disease and starvation. Um, but at that point, he's identified as a Jew and then his fate now is with other Jews, whereas before it was with the mass of Red Army soldiers, um, he's now set aside. And so all the soldiers in captivity in this sort of area were then moved to this Minsk uh, harsh labor camp, which was close to the Minsk ghetto. So that camp was for Jewish POWs and also, I guess what you would call like, um, Red Army soldiers um, who were uh, basically um, criminal to the Germans, like they, they were just stubborn, uh, resistant soldiers um, that they were punishing. Um, incorrigible, I think is the word, incorrigible Red Army soldiers. And so they were in now this punishment camp that was very harsh. Um, it was, they were doing some kind of labor but it was run by the SS and, you know, there were, the descriptions of what Pucherski does put down uh, are, are, you know, are incredibly brutal. Um, for instance, they would line men up um, in the morning for roll call. And uh, I think he was the commandant of the camp. I can't remember his name. It doesn't really matter. But he would put his gun, his pistol on the shoulder of the front person in line and shoot. And so anybody who was out of line uh, would be killed, right? So if you were standing a little bit to the side, so that was one thing. They tortured men by, you know, dousing them in boiling water and then freezing water. They Men were attacked by dogs. I mean, it's it was a terrible, terrible, brutal place, um, but not nearly as bad as where they were headed next, um, which is at, at a certain point, uh, in September of 1943, when he'd already been at this camp, the Shiroka Street Camp, which is what it was called in Minsk, um, they were put on trains and sent to where they, like, they had no idea where they were going, but they were just put on boxcars. Um, so it was Red Army soldiers um, and also people from the Minsk ghetto, Jews, uh, who were sent in these sealed boxcar trains, uh, all they knew is that they were being sent west somewhere, and they really had no idea where. And that, that's the part of the story where Sobibor comes in. And so we, before we dive into his individual experience there, Sobibor formed part of Operation Reinhard. What, for, for those who don't know what that was, what was that, and how did it sort of differ to the traditional concentration camps like Auschwitz, et cetera. Right. Um, so the Holocaust was, uh, you know, multi-form. There was not just one Holocaust. Um, the only thing about the Holocaust that was consistent is that the Nazis, you know, believed that Jews were not human, so they were subhuman, and therefore should not be accorded uh, treatment as humans. And eventually they decided that the Jews just needed to be killed. Um, any Jew in Europe uh, should be killed. Man, woman, child, it really didn't matter. 
Um, and so the Reinhard camps, which were created um, in 1942 at the uh, Wansi conference, um, were meant to be death camps. So there were concentration camps where, you know, like Dachau, there were punishment camps and also people were made to do work, sometimes futile work. Um, there were, you know, there were camps that were affiliated with German industry where there was slave labor, Jews were ghettoized and starved. Um, but they reached a point, uh, the Nazis did, where they had already been killing Jews, uh, particularly in the Soviet Union, uh, by mass shooting. So they would arrive somewhere, uh, perhaps the most notorious of them all um, is Babiyar in Kiev, and where they shot over 30,000 people in two days um, in a ravine. But that wasn't an efficient way to get rid of people. Um, it was also um, hard on the murderers. Um, it was taxing, it was emotionally taxing. Um, so they wanted to find a way to do this more efficiently um, and in a, a more industrial organized scale. So that's why the death camps were created. They were created in part out of sympathy for their own murderers um, and also out of a desire to be as efficient as possible in the murder and plunder of Europe's Jews. So enter the, the Operation Reinhard camps. So these are death camps. There's Belchek, there's Sobibor, which was the smallest, and Treblinka, which was the largest. So this is how a death camp uh, compares to a concentration camp. I mean, Auschwitz had Birkenau, which was a death factory, um, but these were uh, exclusively factories of death. So a train rolls up at the station in Sobibor, let's say, all the people are taken off the train. Maybe there's a small selection for workers to do a very specific type of work. There's no industry there. The only job is the job of murder and almost exclusively the job of murder of Eastern European Jews. Um, so within two hours, everybody who had been on these trains would have been passed through um, had their belongings taken, would have been undressed, uh, their hair shaved, particularly the women's hair cut off, and forced through a uh, kind of a long um, path that was um, covered in pine branches so people outside could not quite see, um, and then herded into um, gas chambers that, unlike uh, Auschwitz, we're not using Zyklon B gas. Um, if people are familiar, it's not pouring gas through the shower, uh, you know, the fake shower uh, fixtures in the ceiling, but they had um, a, a large, I think they were tank engines. I think they were actually Russian tank engines um, that were uh, running and asphyxiating these people. And as soon as these people were asphyxiated, um, they would be removed. All of this work done uh, by Jews who were enslaved to do it. Um, and then, you know, if they, they, these slaves, which were called the Sonderkommando, 
would then see if there are any gold teeth, they would pull teeth, anything of value uh, on the human person uh, would be removed and then organized and shipped off to the Reich. So for example, I talked about women's hair being cut off, uh, shorn. That was used um, for insulation, um, for car seats, I, I read somewhere else. Um, so the idea was, unlike when they were mass shooting Jews in the forests of the Soviet Union, um, now they had this very efficient system of taking all their possessions, uh, killing them in a way where nobody could see, where it was also done in such a way that no, you know, you didn't require many, many people to shoot them um, and be disturbed by that. Um, and so that was what a death camp was. And so you had these three death camps where they really rarely chose anybody off the transports to survive. The only thing that if, you know, if they needed, because their prisoners were also dying. So if you needed people to meet people at the train uh, station and take their things or to work in the warehouses where they were um, itemizing uh, the, the things that they'd taken. They had uh, workshops for carpenters and they had workshops for shoemakers, and they had workshops for tailors and that sort of thing. So a small number of people who were servicing the camp. Uh, but there was no industry. The only thing that death camps created was death. So yeah, so as, as an Eastern European Jew, Brzezki was treated differently by uh, uh, Jews and also the Nazis. Um, it's surprising to many also to hear that you have, you know, these strict hierarchies within the camps, even among the Jews themselves. Could you explain a little bit about that? Right. So the, the Operation Reinhard camps, which were for the most part in the eastern part of Poland, were there to, to uh, murder the Jews of that part of Poland, which had fallen under Nazi rule, but had not been incorporated into Germany because there was part of Poland that was uh, become part of the Reich and part of Poland that was not. It was the general gouvernement, um, and that was not part of the Reich. Um, and so they were killing the Jews of Warsaw, the, that was in Treblinka, um, and, and uh, the major Jewish centers of Poland, but eventually they also started to transport Jews from Western countries. Um, a large uh, contingent of Dutch Jews were killed in Sobibor, French Jews, Czech Jews, um, and they were treated differently. So those transports would arrive from the West going East, often in passenger cars. Um, the Jews would have been better dressed because they hadn't, first of all, they were probably not as impoverished as the Jews of the Soviet Union to begin with. Um, and they had probably would not have been treated quite as brutally as the Jews of the Soviet Union would have been by the Nazis. Um, but they would arrive and they would be met almost cordially at the station and uh, treated in such a way that they thought that, well, we're just here for work and people are giving us, you know, a receipt for our luggage, literally, you know, somebody, a, a Jewish um, platform worker would give these people a receipt. Yes, you'll get your bags back. Um, and then they would be taken through the same, you know, stations and, and killed. Um, whereas the Jews from Eastern Europe, they discovered they don't need to do that. Um, so they, you know, they were transported in uh, boxcars. And as soon as they got off the train, there was no niceties. There were usually beatings um, and they threw, threw fear more than um, deceit 
uh, tried to move these people into the uh, um, the, the death stations. Um, so that was a difference. And I think even within the camp, um, these Jews, you know, saw each other differently. The Jews from the East resented the Jews from the West for some reason. The Jews from the West felt superior to the Ostjuden, the Jews from the East. Um, and so, it, there, you know, it was a complicated, it, it's actually an important point because uh, the community within the camp of the Jews that had been permitted to work and live uh, was a not a homogenous community. It was a heterogeneous and somewhat stratified community. Um, so to get all these people to um, plan together or to be careful enough not to reveal your plan um, because of fear of, of being uh, betrayed or denounced even by other Jews um, was part of the difficulty of putting this plan together of this uprising. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, try to imagine uh, bringing people together from all over Europe, um, you know, right now, I don't know what they're, whatever, whatever unified them, it doesn't really matter. Let's say they all were, they all loved soccer. And, you know, now there's a government that says all soccer lovers are going to have to be killed, um, or football, as, as you call it. And, um, yeah, and you have a camp with all these ethnicities, people from different places, and who are also traumatized um, there. Yeah. If if they are alive, that means that the people they came with, um, their their families have, have already been killed. Yeah, um, fascinating stuff. Thank you, uh, David. Just and 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 obviously once in Solvo, Kaczewski, it's clear that people gravitated towards him and he wasted a uh, little time in planning an escape. Um, why was he so, I mean, Probably you've explained quite a bit of that already, but why was he so urgent to escape? And can you tell us about his plan? Right. So, I mean, there's some aspects of this are just luck. So, for instance, why why was he not killed in the first place? Why did the SS permit 80 Red Army soldiers uh, to enter the camp um, instead of killing them? Right. That That would seem, you know, a potentially unwise decision um, but they did there was you know there's a reason why that happened which had to do with apparently um, an equal number of Dutch prisoners who had been killed who had tried to launch an escape and a failed escape so they needed workers um, so if not for that Pachersky would have been killed anyway um, they arrive in September late September of 1943 and September the 23rd, I think, and by October the 14th, so three weeks later, uh, there's the uprising. So it, it was planned incredibly quickly. Um, and the reasons for that were, first of all, winter was coming. Winter comes early there. Um, and they were aware, um, you know, the Red Army soldiers and others, that if winter comes and there's snow and you escape into the forest, you can easily be tracked. So you want to do it before that happens. Um, also, you, if you're making a plan like this, you can only keep it secret for so long. So if you if you start launching it, you have to be very quick about it. Um, Pachersky was identified by a, a Polish Jewish prisoner. Um, 
and who was part of this like uh, nascent underground that had never managed to do anything. Feldhandler was the man's name. Um, and so I don't know why he approaches Pachersky, but he does on the very first day, maybe because Pachersky was older than the other um, Red Army soldiers. He was 34 and the others were in their 20s. Um, he was a handsome man. He was uh, kind of an impressive looking person. Um, but it's never explained exactly why. Um, some people have supposed that it's because he was an officer, but I strongly doubt that if he was an officer, he would have not concealed that from the Germans. Um, I, he would have taken you know, any markings of that off his uniform. Um, and I won't get too much into like what kind of officer he was because he wasn't a military man, as we talked about before. He was, uh, his expertise was musical theater, directing musical theater. Um, he was a quartermaster. Um, he was not in any way, uh, you know, a great warrior before all this happens. So he's approached and they start planning very quickly. They also know, here's the other thing, they feel that the time is coming when this camp is going to be closed. Um, it's been functioning for right around nine months. Um, and the transports have slowed down. I mean, this is the brutal, uh, tragic irony of these places that for the Jews who had survived, who had been selected, in order for them to live, other Jews have to die. As soon as the transports stop coming, they will be killed. Um, it's a terrible, terrible calculus. And so a plan is put in place that what they're going to do, uh, Pachersky and Feldhandler, and Pachersky had a very close associate, um, a Polish Jew, um, who spoke Yiddish, and Pachersky didn't speak Yiddish. Um, and so the three of them um, would go and talk to the, uh, the heads of the departments um, who were also involved in planning, so the carpentry shop, the tailor shop, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and they started planning, what can we do? Um, and one idea was to dig a tunnel and they uh, decided against that. It seemed like it was impractical to try to get the entire camp uh, to go through a tunnel into the woods overnight. Um, and what they landed on was that they there were only about 20 SS in the camp at any time. Most of the guards were, as they were called, Ukrainian guards, which is a broad term but they were, for the most part, Ukrainian POWs from the Red Army, um, or some people who were conscripted into service, I don't know, some who volunteered, again, it's hazy, um, who served the function of being the guards um, around the watchtowers and that sort of thing. But they weren't trusted by the Nazis, so they were only given ammunition at a certain time. Um, There's a tremendous amount of distrust in every direction. But what the, the Jews decided um, is that they, if they could lure the SS officers into the workshops under some false pretense, usually um, playing upon their uh, greed, um, you know, we can get you a beautiful pair of boots or we can make you a, a remarkable coat um, and please come. And, uh, and so what would happen is they'd be lured into a workshop and in the workshop, already waiting would be two Red Army soldiers, usually. There are a few um, assassins who are not Red Army soldiers, but for the most part, they're Red Army soldiers. They were equipped with axes that had been wetted keenly 
in advance. And so each two, like this, these groups of two assassins were meant to kill these SS officers as they came into the workshop. So somebody, you know, is, is brought in, he's supposed to try on a great coat. And while he's putting it on, these men jump out and hack him to death and then hide the body as quickly as possible. And then, you know, in half an hour or whatever, the next one is supposed to come and they kill a second. And this is meant to happen, you know, across the camp um, in such a way that it's been choreographed that it's all happening basically at the same time. Uh, Pachersky is not involved in any of these killings. He's um, sort of like, you know, imagine him as um, the general behind this. Um, and people would report back to him um, what, you know, what they've accomplished. Um, he was actually supposed to kill um, a, uh, an SS officer, uh, in fact, a sergeant, um, who he didn't kill because he didn't show up at the appointed place in time. But this, is, this was the plan. They relied on the uh, Nazis' greed and also their um, Teutonic punctuality, the fact that if they say they're going to do something, these are very punctual people, um, that they will actually show up on time. Um, and so this was the plan. And they were supposed to kill all these people, you know, roughly at the same time. And once they'd done that, the idea is that they have decapitated um, the uh, the rule, uh, the power base in the camp, and that the Ukrainian guards without the SS uh, will either not do anything or they'll be in such disarray that an escape will be possible out through the front gates, literally that they would open the front gates and everybody would march out into the woods. The, the woods were nearby and, uh, and that's where they would uh, disappear into. Uh, the escape was set for dusk so that when people went into the forest, they would, they would have night to put some distance between them and the camp. That was the idea. And yeah, I guess, um... The idea is always great, but in terms of how they play out, um, it can often be quite hectic. Was was that the case in the escape plan? It was. Um, it begins actually very much according to plan, um, and uh, and so they there are people around the camp uh, in different parts, uh, luring these SS people um, and killing them. Um, but at a certain point. Um, you know, uh, one SS officer is like unloading a truck and uh, two young Jewish, you know, youths are caught either saying something or somehow it's exposed that this is happening. And then there's no more, you know, orderly fashion of escape. Uh, a bugle is blown and everybody's supposed to gather for a roll call, which was at a time that was unusual for the camp. So the prisoners are confused, but they're being told, you know, you have to go and do this. And it, you know, it catches on that there's this escape. Um, and then it's bedlam. Um, the, uh, the, the Ukrainian guards open fire. So there's, they're shooting at these um, prisoners. Um, nobody can actually go through the front gate. So they have to go up, you know, through the barbed wire in every direction that they can find, and the fields around the camp are mined. Um, so people are being shot at and running through minefields to try to get to the woods. Um, apparently there were 600 
prisoners within the camp. Um, I'm, don't hold me to these numbers, but something on the order of 300 of them made it to the forest. Let's imagine if most of them tried to escape. Um, among them was Pachersky and some of his close associates. Um, the uh, the Polish um, friend that he had uh, is shot um, and he doesn't make it. Um, there's a woman, a young woman who was actually sort of Pachersky's cover because part of the way that they were doing the planning, they were allowed to go into the women's camp in the evenings. And so Pachersky and, and Feldhandler um, would talk and this young German woman who didn't speak Yiddish or, uh, or Russian uh, would not understand what they're saying, but she would like, you know, be cover as Pachersky's girlfriend to explain why he was uh, having to go there. So she's lost, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But Pachersky ends up in the forest with a handful of his Red Army fighters and some other prisoners um, that managed to make it out there. And uh, yeah, I guess at this point, um, Pachersky chooses to split from the larger group. Um, and although in many ways Pachersky saved a lot of people's lives, his decision to break from that group um, left some resentful. Uh, do we know what happened to many of these escapees and what role did the locals play in their, their fate as well? Um, so Pachersky and his Red Army soldiers want to go east um, to get back into the Soviet Union and join the fight um, and, and rejoin the Red Army. Um, the Polish Jews uh, know the terrain in the area and, uh, you know, can go back kind of to their hometowns or something, like find a way to conceal themselves. Um, any of the French Jews, the Dutch Jews, the Czech Jews are really in trouble because they don't know the language, they don't know where they are, and tragically a lot of them get captured and killed. Um, the resentment comes because Pachersky and his Red Army fighters, um, you know, the, the people have really come to rely on them. Uh, and Pachersky in particular, as, as you know, the leader, him and Feldhandler were the two leaders, but Pachersky was really the military leader. Um, and they didn't want them to go. They didn't know what they would do. Um, and the Red Army soldiers had most of the weapons, so they resented that. Um, but Pachersky knew that with a large group, um, there were about 50 people, that it was just impossible um, to survive. They would be, they'd be found out. Um, it was too large a group. So there are these, you know, very pragmatic, um, hard choices, life and death choices that are being made. Um, and, you know, from where we sit right now, um, it's hard to, I think it's hard to judge. Um, and the people who did resent him at the same time also um, were grateful to him, those who survived for their entire lives, because without him, um, nobody would have survived. Um, I'll just give you a, a quick little statistical sense of what these death camps were like. Um, so Sobibor, apparently, you know, the belief is that 250,000 people were killed there. Um, 50 survived. And the only reason they survived was because of this uprising. In Belchak, uh, where there was no uprising, um, on the order of 600,000 Jews were killed there. And I think there are only two or three non-survivors. Incredible. Yeah, unbelievable. Right? So 
nobody was supposed to survive. You were nobody, zero. Um, and Treblinka also, which was the largest of the camps, and the estimation is that 900,000 people were were murdered there. And again, they had about 50 uh, or so survivors because they also had an uprising. Uh, in August, they had their uprising, and in October, Sobibor had theirs. And the uprisings were actually somewhat similar, even though they didn't know of each other. Um, but um, the Treblinka uprising, I guess, is slightly less well-known. Uh, because the Sobibor uprising, in some sense, is more comprehensively successful. But in both cases, uh, the only reason that you have survivors from those camps is because uh, prisoners managed to rise up and escape. Interesting stuff. And yeah, I guess moving slightly on. Yeah. Um, and I remember I, this, I'm sort of recalling a book that I read called Ordinary Men um, by Christopher Browning. And he, he he sort of it, it, focus, it focused on these you know normal family men who um, ended up getting posted in uh, Eastern Europe and were responsible for you know rounding up Jews um, and and dealing with them. And what what I found most chilling from that was the fact that you know they almost had resentment that the that Jews were willing to almost accept their fate and not fight back. Um, and I guess firstly, do you do you sort of agree with this is there is there grounds to suggest that was the case and if so why do you think Sobibor was slightly different um i think it's unfair to say that i mean i think there was something fatalistic in the jewish character uh, because of a history of oppression um, that these people had been oppressed over centuries and persecuted um, but they always believed that they would survive like you know, none of the people who went passively, let's say, I don't, by the time they did that, they were so thoroughly um, dispossessed, starved, um, demoralized. Um, and also a large component of what the Nazis did was built on deception and deceit. They never said, you know, they always said that there's something else that's going to happen. You're going to work. Um, we're going to move you somewhere else. This is for your own good, we're protecting you. And the human soul, the human spirit, I think wishes to believe that. It's it's so hard to believe that for no reason whatsoever, um, you are going to be murdered. And so are these little children and so are these old people uh, for no reason other than, um, you know, an accident of birth. Um, and it wasn't, you know, this is some of these Jews were communists, some of them were socialists, some of them were capitalists, some of them were, or, you know, followed the faith and didn't follow the faith. Some of them had converted to Catholicism. It didn't matter. Um, just by virtue of being labeled a Jew by the Nazi um, regime, you were uh, marked for death all across Europe, everywhere. So, who could believe that such a thing would happen? It's, you know, it boggled the mind of those people too. They just couldn't believe it. It just made no sense. Um, yeah. But but there was resistance. So that's, you know, often what the Nazis did is they, you know, they assembled men ages 16 to 60 and they would kill them. So the men who could offer resistance were often killed first. Um, and, uh, you know, 
the population was starved, they were ghettoized, so getting weapons was difficult. But there were uprisings. I mean, uh, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, probably the most uh, famous um, and remarkable uh, in that the Jews rose up and fought the Nazis for, again, don't quote me, but you know, it was over a month that they held out. Um, there were uprisings in Bialystok. Uh, there were um, localized uprisings. Um, so it happened. And in Auschwitz too, there was, uh, there was the Sonderkommando um, destroyed one of the crematoria uh, late in the war. And so they also rose up. So it did happen. Um, but I think, you know, if you were to turn things around on the Nazis and that any nation would come into Germany and do to Germans what the Germans did to Jews, I'd be very surprised if the outcome was any different. So, yeah, um, definitely, I think still difficult for us to comprehend the more even we read about it today. So, yeah, thank you for that. And uh, and then you argue, David, that part of the reason that the story got lost was um, uh, partly due to Sasha's uh, relationship with a Gentile and his, his perceived lack of Jewishness. Is, do you think that's a fair assessment? Well, it's not that he was, I mean, Sasha was, uh, he would call himself a Soviet person and an internationalist. He married a Russian woman twice. I mean, his first wife was Russian and his second wife was Russian. Um, I think the reasons why this is forgotten has uh, to do with a couple things. First of all, Sobibor and the Reinhardt camps, as most of the Holocaust was, was meant to be secret. Sobibor was so secret, it was the smallest of these Reinhardt camps. No records were meant to be kept of these places. The Nazis concealed them in the woods somewhere, um, and nobody was supposed to know about them. Um, so that's one thing. Uh, the Nazis knew, which to me always kind of feels some sort of contradiction that they were doing this and they were proud of killing the Jews, but at the same time realized that if the world knew what they were doing, that uh, they would be condemned for it. I, I never, I, I still can't quite understand um, what the contradiction is for them. I don't know why they would just be not be proudly killing as many Jews as they could and trumpeting it elsewhere, but they didn't. And as the war, as they started losing the war, they started covering their tracks and burning bodies and that sort of thing. So nobody knew, nobody was supposed to know that Soviet war existed. Um, the other thing is that once the war was won, um, in the Soviet Union, where so many millions of people, 27 million people were, were killed or died or by some fashion, and so many people had suffered, um, the Soviet regime said, we're not going to divide the victims. So we don't want to say, you know, that these were Jews. We're going to call, if we're going to commemorate any of these places, that these were peaceful Soviet citizens that had been killed by the German uh, occupier. Now, the fact that there were local uh, accomplices also was difficult for the Soviet Union because all these people had to now live together. So if there were Ukrainians or Latvians or you know, uh, Lithuanians who had participated in the killing, yes, you found some of the worst of them and put them on trial, but for the most part, you, know, you didn't really want to uh, create all these tensions. And Stalin also really became quite anti-Semitic at the end of the war and really until his death. So he, um, 
was actually planning a sort of mass uh, population transfer of all the Jews to Siberia. So there was this atmosphere within the Soviet Union that was actually quite oppressive towards Jews after World War II. So this, you know, this state and this army that had saved the Jews um, because of, you know, their ability to defeat Hitler then became their primary oppressor. I mean, there, you know, these terrible uh, ironies, these dark ironies. Um, so for all of those reasons, um, nobody really talked about the Holocaust within the Soviet Union. You weren't supposed to talk about it. Um, and therefore, it kind of gets lost. I mean, Pachersky tries, you know, his main objective after he survives the war is he wants to tell the story of Sovipar. Um, he writes his first book, um, and then he keeps trying to do this. But um, for about a decade after the war, you really couldn't talk about these things, not in the press, not anywhere. Um, and so for that long time, it's, uh, it's suppressed. And then throughout the entire Soviet period, you really could not talk about the Holocaust in the Soviet Union. Um, the commemorations were very vague. And so the places where you would have the most information uh, were unavailable and the people were, were frightened to say anything. So it's mostly for those reasons that are political reasons um, that had less to do with Pachersky himself as an individual because he himself, all he wanted to do was to talk about Sobibor. Um, he really felt that this was the aim and purpose of his life um, from the end of the war uh, effectively until he died. Thank you, David. And and uh, just to sort of build on what you were saying there, um, he was actually sort of viewed with suspicion by the Soviets just for being have being imprisoned in a German camp. Um, could you could you explain why this he was particularly viewed with suspicion? Yeah. So Pachersky had you know for all the luck uh, that he had to survive, he had a lot of strikes against him, or some significant ones. He was a Jew. Uh, post-war, that was a problem. Um, he was also a POW, um, and that was considered a great shame because, at a, you know, the Soviets believed that nobody should have been allowed, allowed themselves to be captured. You should fight until you die, until your death, even though the failure of the Red Army and the regime to plan for war uh, was the reason that so many of these, you know, poor hapless soldiers were captured. Um, but yeah, being a POW was a, a tremendous shame. Um, you would have to explain how it is that you were survived, that you had survived in uh, in the occupied territories. What, what what is it that you did for these Germans when everybody else was being killed? You're a Jew. How did you survive? Pachersky was given the rank of officer, even though he's a quartermaster. Uh, but at a certain point, they just raised all the quartermasters to, to the level of lieutenant. So how is it that you're an officer, let alone a conscripted Red Army soldier, and you've survived in, uh, in, in the occupied territories? A tremendous amount of distrust. Um, and Pachersky, after, so when he and his mates um, separate, they end up in partisan detachments and fight for about a year as partisans in the forest. So he does that. Um, and then because he's distrusted, he's put into a special uh, unit, which is called a, a, a Sturmbad, which is a storm unit, 
uh, for these officers who had been uh, in captivity because they're distrusted and they have to uh, basically wash away their sins with their blood. So they're put in the most dangerous uh, uh, battles and positions within battle, and he's heavily wounded. He's lucky to have survived. Those people are also dying in great, great numbers. So this is the, you know, the situation that he finds himself in. He's a Jew. He wants to talk about the Holocaust, which you're not supposed to talk about. Um, he was a POW, which is a tremendous shame. A lot of these men were also just sent to the Gulag after the war, um, these, these Soviet POWs. So it's not like in you know the United States, for instance, where after the Vietnam War, it was all about bring our boys home and we'll do anything. You know, the POW is seen as uh, as a hero and somebody you know uh, to be respected. Um, in the in in the Soviet Union, in Stalin's Russia, Soviet Union, that was not the case. Uh, you were you had shamed yourself. And yeah, Selma Ledersdorf, who's written a book on Pachevsky. Um, argues that there's another reason, and she suggests that it's or the the reason why the story sort of got lost was a wider reflection of many societies' unwillingness to almost acknowledge the suffering of Jews. Did you do you buy this critique? I mean, here's the other thing. I I don't know. Look, there's Sobibor is not Auschwitz, so. You know, people know about Auschwitz, right? So that sort of premise would mean that nobody would know about any of the Holocaust, rather that there's some sort of like graduated system of these are aspects of the Holocaust we know about, and these are aspects of the Holocaust we don't know about. But if societies don't wish to acknowledge the Holocaust, I don't understand why they acknowledge some part and not other. Um, I don't think that's quite it. Um, I think what happens is, there are so few survivors, right? Auschwitz was a large camp with many survivors, okay? Not enough survivors, but there were survivors. Then they go and speak about what happened. Dachau, Auschwitz, um, some of these, you know, Bergen-Belsen, some of these camps, even, you know, Mauthausen. There are places where people have gone through them, Buchenwald, and there are survivors who can talk about it. As I said earlier, almost nobody survived. So the camps are secret. There are almost no survivors. Um, the camps themselves are leveled afterwards and turned into fields. And um, the Germans actually install often Ukrainian uh, families to live there and farm them. Um, there's just not enough known about them. And the files that were in the Soviet Union are not accessible um, to Western scholars. So you can't, it's, how do you do research on this stuff when a lot of the material is in the Soviet Union? Whereas with Auschwitz, even though it was liberated by the Soviets, uh, the camp, you know, you can go and see Auschwitz today. Um, you can go and see Dachau today. You can't go and see Sobibor. You can't go and see Treblinka or Belchak. There, there's nothing there. So I think it has much more to do with circumstantial reasons than it has to do with a general prejudice, because I don't think that that logically scans. Wow, yeah. Um, 
fascinating it's funny yeah i'm sure many people would be would be thinking that they they would be interested to visit but as you say it's uh been leveled so yeah but thank you for that and and just one last question for you david um obviously fascinating for um his his life and, and if you had the chance to sit down with with Pachewski for for a drink today what would be the one question that you would ask him i would ask him which he never quite answers you know how could you like what was it within you that enabled you to do this like what you know what how would you describe who you were at that time um how you were thinking and feeling because i think that's the fascination with Pachersky was for so many people is like what sort of person can do this um you know, he has to, on the one hand, be very harsh uh, on pain of death. If anybody, you know, was going to um, betray or there was the suspicion that somebody was going to, you know, try to escape earlier or betray Pachersky with, you know, this is known that he would say, if you do anything, we will kill you. Um, this sort of clarity of purpose, the ability to rally people. Um, it's the, the, that charisma and, and leadership. What sort of man was he? Be? What we haven't talked about is there are a few episodes in his time uh, at Sobibor that became legend. Um, one in particular where, you know, he was uh, challenged by an SS officer, his nemesis, um, to chop up a stump in under five minutes. They were uh, working in part of the camp. Um, and Pachersky, you know, chops up this stump, which is full of knots and very difficult, but he does it in four minutes and 30 seconds. And then this uh, German says to him, okay, well, I'm gonna keep my end of the bargain. You know, here's some cigarettes. And Pachersky says, no, thank you, I don't smoke. And then the man goes away and comes back with bread and, and uh, marmalade and says, here, Russian soldier, take. And Pachersky, you know, allegedly says, um, no, thank you. I'm not hungry. The rations that are supplied here uh, satisfy me, which, of course, they didn't. <laughs> right? Like, what yes. has the courage, the moral courage to do that? Mm. You could believe that he would just be shot on the spot. Yeah. Beggar's belief. Yeah, yeah, and uh, yeah, an, an incredible character, and you know, we're the theme of our podcast has very much been broadly on the, you know, broadly on exploration. But there's certainly threads that sort of attach all these different stories, um, and certainly some of the character types that um, uh, Pachewski was showing was yeah, definitely, definitely chime well. So superhuman. Yeah, it's it's an incredible story, and I'm I'm glad you were you were able to tell it for us. So. Yeah, from uh, Max and I, thank you very much. David, yeah, thank you. It's been a pleasure to hear your, your, your story. Well, Pachewski's story. <laughs> well, thank you both for your interest. Uh, you, know, it's, you know, as it remains, it's not a well, it's not known as much as it should be. Um, mm. and, and I appreciate the chance to be able to talk about him. Like research and, and writing about him changed my life. I mean, it was learning mm. some of these details affected me in a way that, you know, that I'm, I'm not quite the same person since. Mm. Wow.
hasta la vida.